stand for preaching last week, and today we are looking at probably, perhaps the best-known parable, one of the top two for sure, uh, what is oftentimes coined the Good Samaritan. And so let's quickly dive into that. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Here's what Luke writes. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. And teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to vindicate himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him and took off, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came upon him, and when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, treating them with oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God and let us pray. God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the ways in which you have already revealed yourself, and we pray that you would continue to do so now. And I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. Well, let me remind you that Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. In other words, he knows that he is headed towards his death. He knows that his time on earth is drawing nigh, and so he is beginning to gear everything over these next several chapters towards what does it mean to be a disciple. So that if you want to know what does it mean to be a disciple, this Luke 10 through around 19 is the perfect, these are the perfect chapters to look at. Because Jesus begins to pour into his disciples because he knows he is not going to be there much longer. And in the midst of that, as he's going towards Jerusalem, a lawyer comes up to him and asks him a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now let's be clear, this particular kind of lawyer is not like a lawyer like what we typically would understand. It is more of a religious lawyer. In other words, he's the kind of lawyer to whom people would come up to ask him the very question that he is asking Jesus. They might come up to him to say, what must we do to inherit eternal life and it says here that he was testing him now to be sure this word for test is the exact same word that Luke uses in chapter 4 whenever Satan is testing Jesus so there is a part of him that perhaps is trying to trap Jesus but I also think that as you read through this passage you also get a sense that the lawyer there's also some genuineness in this question of really wondering what exactly is it going to take Jesus like any good teacher he does not just simply answer him rather he asks him a question what is written in the law what do you read there 
And so perhaps almost, I think, in a tip to the fact that he really is just kind of questioning and, and not necessarily just trying to catch Jesus. He says, well, you're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. To which Jesus says, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. I think it's important to kind of just mark how what Jesus is saying here is making it very clear. You have given the right answer. Now go and do likewise. In other words, it is one thing, obviously, to know the right answer. And it is a wholly different thing altogether to actually go and do it likewise. And so Jesus is telling him, well, it's great to know this. Now the question is, do you actually know what it takes to be able to do this? And so we are told that the lawyer here wants to vindicate himself. The NIV says it wants to justify himself. And one way to translate that or to understand its meaning is this. That he means he wants to make himself look right and ordered correctly. Now I want to be clear here uh, that that can really make the lawyer look pretty bad here. Oh, he's just worried about making himself look good. Or he's just worried here about making sure that, you know, that he feels good about himself and I think it's very easy when we read Scripture as a brief aside to either try to make the characters, the people in Scripture, either really bad or really good. Because whenever you make them really bad or really good, what you allow yourself to do is that you don't have to actually think that they have anything to say to you. Most of us don't think that we are really bad, and most of us don't think that we are really good. Oh, that's somebody else who's really bad. That's somebody else who's really good. But I think that most of these people in Scripture are really much more like us so that when we begin to hear this question when he begins to say well what do I have to do right to make myself look okay or what do I have to do to make sure that I feel okay about myself I actually think this is a great question it's asking what is the least I can do and still feel okay I like to call this kind of the rule of 94 that's just my own personal name for this the rule of 94 what I mean by that is this when I was in high school the grading scale for an A was 94 to 100. And so that, the question that always went with me was this, what is the least I can do to make sure I still get a 100? No, a 94. Because if I get a 94, you know what my parents are gonna see? An A. You know what, I'm gonna feel good, I got an A. That's all I needed to do. It's the rule of 94. Just do the least I can do. Why would you put in more effort to get 100? It's a waste of time. And so we live our lives, even our religious lives, oftentimes by saying, what's the least I have to do to make sure, though, that I at least get a 94? I wonder, I was thinking about this when it comes to our own generosity campaign. How many of us thought, what's the least I could give to still feel okay? Right? And that's not mean. I mean, that's a part of the question that I had to ask. What's the, I'm up here talking. What's the least I could give and not feel hypocritical when we give something? Many of us kind of live these kind of questions, right? What's the least we can give to still look okay to others and still feel okay and be able to sleep tonight? And this is exactly the question that the lawyer is asking Jesus. And so once again, Jesus doesn't just give him an answer. He doesn't just say, well, here's what you got to do to get a 94. Instead, he tells them a story. It's a story that most of us know. That there, were, uh, there was a man who was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. 
Now, this, of course, is a route that is oftentimes uh, full of kind of robbers. It was twisty and turning. It was quite dangerous. So he went down, and he was robbed. He was beaten. He was left half dead. The first person that comes down, of course, is a priest. And the priest sees him, but he goes to the other side and walks by. The second person's a Levite, also kind of the priestly order. And he sees him, and he, and he goes by, and he walks by. Now, again, it would be very easy for us to think, oh, what a what jerks these guys are. How do they not stop? Don't they know? But there are, of course, many reasons why you wouldn't stop. You know these reasons, right? I mean, you know, look, if there was someone who just got robbed and beaten right there, there's a good chance that they are not too far away. Which means if you stop, it's very likely that perhaps they might also beat you. And of course, you also have, they have their own religious duties. I mean, Ken Bailey says, here's the thing. If, you were, if they were to go and become impure, which is what would have happened, that they then would have had to go get a red heifer. Uh, you have to pay for that. You have to burn it into ashes. All of these things, which would have taken about a week's time. So this is a question of, well, not only, you know, now I have to be away from my family as I wait and try to do this. Now I, I can't do my responsibilities that I have been called to do in the temple. As Fred Craddock says, this is, it was a real question between uh, between something uh, that was incredibly important and something else that was incredibly important between duty and duty. This was not an easy question. And so it's flippant of us if we are, have a tendency to just think, oh, I can't believe they were so horrible. In fact, I would ask this question, how many of us have just driven by somebody, right? When they're changing their tire along the side of the road or they clearly have something. And, and do you know why we do this? We have lots of great reasons why we don't stop, right? Many of them are the same reasons. What's going to happen physically to me? I have my own, I'll be, I'll be very honest, my own rule, which is that I would never stop for somebody if I have my children in the car. Because you don't know what those people are going to be like. And you don't know if you stop that another car may hit you. And... Here's the reality. As I look in my rearview mirror, I see a bunch of really nice people behind me. And I figure one of them doesn't have their kids in the car, probably has nothing else to do, may almost just be looking for someone to help. And so before any of us just are kind of flipping about, oh, I can't believe this was so easy. Why didn't they do this? We should ask the question, have you ever passed a car that was along the side of the road and not helped? third person comes along. Now, what scholars tell us is that, by and large, the person who should have likely come along was just a typical kind of Jewish uh, uh, a lay person, if you will. Just an average uh, person, really. This would have been a perfect kind of anti-clerical story. They love those anti-clerical stories. We do too, right? We love pointing out the hypocrisy of religious leaders, right? It's always a good time to be able to do that, right? And so that's who would have come next. Oh, I know who would come next. It will be just kind of a normal Joe. In other words, those, all those who were listening, right, the others who were listening, they thought that they would be the next character. But, of course, it wasn't. Who was it? It was a Samaritan. Now, we could go into great detail about Samaritans, uh, but, but, but you probably already know. They were despised, right? They had, uh, as some have said, you know, questionable heredity and even more questionable theology. This was how it was looked. There are some who think that this was kind of a, the group that came out of Assyrians who were brought into this land just in order to try to, you know, have the Assyrians have even more power um, in this particular 
country. Uh, in fact, just a few years before Jesus tells the story, there are some Samaritans who kind of sneak into the temple and they throw out bones everywhere into the temple as a way of defiling the whole temple. There is much animosity, as you know, between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. It has even been suggested that if the victim was not half dead, which probably means he was unconscious, that there is at least a decent chance that he would have told the Samaritan to just move on. Better to die than to have the help of a bitter enemy. And yet the Samaritan is moved. In fact, we're told the same word for compassion that we're told he has. It means innards, right? This is going down to the very bowels of who the Samaritan was. As he saw this man, this victim, he almost could not help himself, it seems. Instead, he had to go and begin to help him. And he does so in these beautiful ways. Right? He begins to anoint him, or he begins to take care and put ointment overneath his or over all of his wounds. He he takes him then to, of course, to the to the uh, to the hotel, I guess, to the inn, where he begins to generously give to the inn. And he says, I will come back very soon to make sure that he is okay. It is this abundance of generosity. It is this abundance of care. It is almost as if. Almost as if he's not looking for a grade at all. There seems to be more, no rule of 94 when it comes to the Samaritan. Now, on one level, one of the things about this particular story that we can see is the critical nature of our being compassionate for the vulnerable Right, obviously, that's one thing to see them, right, as the first two did, and it's clearly something else to go and actually do likewise. And so we see that, of course, that's very easy for us to see. I also think that there's this fascinating connection here uh, between being close to someone as the Samaritan got very close and generosity and the generosity of the Samaritan. You see, sometimes generosity can actually uh, move you away from people, right? If you, uh, there are people who are in pain, I can just write a check uh, and take care of them, and, 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 and then I don't have to feel bad about it, and I can actually move away from them. But the Samaritan's generosity is actually what got him even closer. It's because he had this abundance that he was willing to share that he went down and began to heal him. It's because of the abundance that he had to give to the innkeeper that he would then return again to make sure that the Samaritan was okay. I think that this is a beautiful kind of connection that we need to be mindful of. It's a part of the reason why we, as we gave to Crooked Creek, as we began to say, okay, we want to help pay for a staff member. Uh, and, and we didn't do that again, as we said, so that then that person can go and do the work for us. No, 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 no. We are doing it. We are trying to be generous so that we can then go and be closer to those that we want to love and care for. I would suggest it's the same thing for this capital campaign that we've been talking about, this, this property. Why? We, are, we, we give money, right? Not so that then we can try to build something, right, that's just so ornate and so wonderful that nobody then can ever come in hardly. They can just look at it from afar. No, 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 no. We are building it for the reason so that more people will come in, so that we create spaces where we can get closer to people. I've said this many times. One of the great things I love about ZPC, as you can see from the volcano and the, the waterfall, is that this 
is something like this sanctuary is not just used on Sunday morning and it's not just here to be pristine. We like to be able to use this building all through the week and we want more and more people to come in and to know that they have been seen, seen, seen and to know that they have been loved. And so the Samaritan shows us how generosity actually can get us closer to people. But I also think it's really important that we see this particular story on a deeper level. And what I mean by that is this. One of the things that we need to realize is that Jesus did a horrible job of answering the lawyer's question. He actually did not answer the question at all. You want to know how he could have answered the question? Here's how he would have answered the question. In fact, it's probably how I would have told the story. I would have said, okay, the third person comes along. And it's just a normal person, much like you or like me. And he goes, and all of a sudden, he sees a victim. And when he gets closer, he sees, oh, it's a dreaded Samaritan. And so what does he do? He goes, and he loves, and he cares for the Samaritan, and he takes him, he bandages his wounds, and he takes him to an end. He says, I'm going to come back in a couple days. Who is your neighbor? He would have then said to the lawyer. Everybody, even the Samaritan. And a lawyer would have had to wrestle with that and say, oh, my goodness. That feels more like it's 100 than a 94. But okay, let me go wrestle and see if I can do that. But that is not what Jesus did. That is not the story that Jesus told. No, no, no. Jesus told a different story story and he ended it in a very different way that we have to be able to see it is subtle and yet it changes the story in a dramatic way when it comes to how are we supposed to understand it because you see what he actually ends up doing is he says this is not a question about what you should do it's not even a question about the neighbor and which neighbor should you love that is the wrong question that is a perfect religious question to ask but it is not a kingdom question because the kingdom question actually asks a very different question, which is this, as Jesus tries to say. He says, who is the neighbor? Who is the one? Who is the subject? The lawyer was saying, who is the object? Who is the one that I have to love and just get by? And Jesus is saying, that's the wrong question. The wrong question to ask is, what does it mean to be a neighbor? What does it mean for me to change. This has less to do with what I need to do and more to do with who am I. As one scholar says, this is a story about identity. It is not a story about what do I have to do. It is a story about the question as Jesus is trying to help the lawyer to see about who are you? What does it mean to be a loving neighbor? And that is absolutely critical for us to see. This is a theme that we've seen throughout the gospel of Luke because it is a gospel theme. Most of our inclination when it comes to our own faith is to say, now because of this, what do I have to go out and do? How can I make sure that I please God? How can I make sure that I look okay and feel okay about myself? What do I need to go and do? And Jesus will constantly, we see this in Luke, bring it back to the question, no, 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 this is about the story that you are now in. Remember, we've talked about this tapestry of God's kingdom, right? It's like a river, if you will, and when through the 
waters of baptism, we, are, we dive into this kingdom, right? Into this whole new world where Jesus says, you are a new person. Jesus doesn't say, okay, well, take all those parts of what you are and what you used to be and just try to make it a little bit better. Just put some, some makeup on that pig, right? No, 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 that is not what Jesus says. Jesus says, you are a whole new person. Yes, out of that new identity, some great things will come along. Out of that identity, you will have new practices. But do not start by trying to say, well, what do I have to love out there? Start right here by saying, who am I? Because here's what changes. When that happens, you see, you begin to love everyone because that is who you are you love strangers you love enemies you love republicans you love democrats you love people who you understand you love people whom you do not understand this is what's remarkable we love based on nothing about who the other person is we love because of who we are because it is who god says that we are and that flips the script that changes the story it changes the very question you see, the gospel question here is, who are you? It is not, what should you do? But that's also not very easy. Because it is hard for us to remember who we are in Christ. It is incredibly difficult for us to remember who we are. As I was trying to think through this identity and wrestling with it, we also have other identities, of course, and so one of those identities I was thinking about just for myself, because this is my own life, is identity as a pastor. I've shared before that when I was growing up and all the way up into my mid-20s, and even after my, through my first year at seminary, I did not think that I was going to be a pastor. I just could not see myself being a pastor, and that's not what I wanted to do. And, but even after I, I felt like kind of called to go into the ministry, even then it was really hard for me to see myself as pastor, right? Because I just saw myself as, as Jerry. And, I, and so, you know, back in 2005, May 15th of 2005, I was in Charleston, West Virginia for my ordination service. My whole family was there. Uh, my, my, my girlfriend of only three months, uh, Megan, uh, was there. And, 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 and there were all these pastors who were there. And they were all dressed up, right, in their beautiful flowing robes and their stoles. And, 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 and they preached and they talked about me and they gave me challenges about what it means to be a pastor. And then they, they circled up and they... they they, uh, they put their hands on me, and, and then someone said, you are now a minister of word and sacrament. I even got a certificate. <laughs> but when I drove back to Kansas City that, later on that day, do you know what I felt like? I felt like Jerry. I felt absolutely no different. I thought, well, that was kind of lame, Right? A few weeks later in June, I got installed at Heritage Presbyterian Church near Chicago, right? And, and, and I went there, and guess what? You know what? There were still a bunch of pastors, right? And they were all dressed in their robes. But this time, guess who else had a robe on? With the stole and in the bulletin? Reverend Jerry Tech. It was incredible. We had cake. Nothing says something new like cake, right? Cake and ice cream. It was great, right? But when I went back to my rental later on that day there in Wheaton, Illinois, you know what? I just felt like Jerry. I didn't feel like a pastor. I'm not a pastor. Jerry, right? And, you know, as I, as I kind of continued, you know, and I would go into church and people would say, hey, pastor, it took a long time for me to turn around and look. Because it just didn't feel like that. 
right? And as I kind of continued, right, I mean, I, I thought to myself, I mean, I can remember actually the first time that I was kind of sitting up front, uh, you know, because at that point we would have chairs up front and you'd kind of look out to the congregation. And I remember looking up front and I was like, oh my gosh. I literally started smiling because I was like, man, if my friends saw me right now, they would be like, what are you doing up there? <laughs> because you are not pastor, you are Jerry, right? And so then I kind of continued and at times I felt like a real fraud because I did things that were unpastor-like. I was like, Jerry, that's not very pastorly. And I'd have to kind of confess to that. No, that's not very pastorly, Jerry. You got you to be a pastor. Come on, what does that look like? And so I, I would kind of continue on. And then part of the problem is, and, and maybe you recognize this, right, is, is that I saw a couple people who were really pastors, right? Even just here, people you might know. Uh, um, I, Scott, I'm not bringing you up, but you are like this. Uh, 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 but, 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 but like Reverend Jim Capps, you know, the interim that was here. Reverend John Gable, who serves down at, at Tabernacle Press. I promise you, when they came out of the womb, they were holding their certificate of ordination. They are pastors. These are people who just naturally, right, they just exude being a pastor, right? And I, and I just think, oh my goodness, now that's a pastor. But over the years, slowly but surely, over the years, especially as you then just begin to do some of these practices, right? When you begin to, you know, you preach every single week and people come to you and they ask questions and they like for you to go to the hospital. And you, you know, you, when, every time when I come in here, almost daily, people will, someone will say, hey, pastor, hey, pastor. All of a sudden, right? Not all of a sudden, but slowly but surely, you begin to feel a little bit less like a fraud and you begin to realize, wow, you begin to live into that identity. But it does not happen like that. It is a journey of growing into this identity of what it means for me to be pastor. And I think it's exactly the same when it comes to what it means for us to be children of God. I think there's probably a lot of us who feel like, well, I don't know. I'm not really, this is not really me. I mean, am I really, you know, I don't look like this. I don't really actually look that much like a loving neighbor, right? This is a part of what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. You are a loving neighbor. And I can say, oh my goodness, there's all these things, you know. And, and maybe you were even baptized as an adult. Maybe you know this, right? Right after the baptism, it's not all of a sudden, like, you don't get a halo. And you go out, you know what you just feel like? You're regular old you. But that doesn't mean that's who you are because something objective has changed. Right? You are a follower of Jesus. You are a disciple. And the challenge at that point is to begin to grow into that. That's why we say come in here every week. Why? Because you need to be reminded of the fact of who you are. That you are a disciple. You are a loved child of God. You've been made in the image of God. Right? You are a loving neighbor. I know you might have screamed at your neighbor this week. But you are still a loving neighbor. When we confess, here's what I want you to know. We're not just simply confessing, oh, I'm sorry you know, that, I, that I yelled at this person or did that. No, no, no. You are confessing that you've forgotten who you were. You've forgotten your identity. So when we have baptisms, oftentimes we'll say, remember your own baptism in these waters as this reminder. I say sisters and brothers in Christ a lot. Why? Because you need to remember that you are a sister or a brother in Christ. Just like I need to hear pastor at times to remember that, you need to hear that. Right? All of these different things. You need to put in your lives physical things. I have a, a physical thing right uh, right here, this slide right here, a nameplate that I was given, that was given to me back in 2005. And it just says, Jerry Deck, pastor. It's, it's kind of old school. It's kind of lame, but I have it on, I've had it on my desk for the last 18 years. Why? Because sometimes I just need that physical reminder. Right? That's why you need to have physical things in your house, maybe at a workplace, wherever it is. Oh, that's right, child of God. Oh, that's right. This is who I am. That you are a disciple. You are a loving 
neighbor. It is who you are. Do we feel like a fraud at times? Of course we do, but it does not change who Jesus has said you are. And so what Jesus there does is say, look, this question that you asked, this, this, this rule of 94 question, it simply doesn't make sense to me. Because the kingdom question is this, who have you been made by Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection? You are a child of God. You are generous. You are a loving neighbor. You are a disciple. Remember that story. Because it tells you who you are. May it be so. Amen. Amen. God, we thank you for the ways in which you help us to see who we are. God, we confess before we take communion today, we confess that we do not always act like who you say we are. And yet, God, you keep drawing us back to this reality. You keep reminding us, this is who you are. And so I pray, Lord, that as we take of this bread and this cup this morning, that we will remember what you have done for us. And that we would remember your claim on our lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen.